Hi there. We are enjoying Midas Touch indictment updates. Um, indictment updates. Shangri-La. Pakistan. Evil billionaires, how they got rich two months ago on Patrick Boyle. That sounds cool. Let's hear about evil billionaires. How they got rich. Thanks for a billion listens. The period between the end of the American Civil War and the turn of the century, so 1865 through 80. to 1900 in the United States, was a time of rapid economic growth that became known as the Gilded Age. During the 1870s and 1880s, the U.S. economy grew at the fastest rate in the country's history, with real wages, wealth, GDP, and capital formation all growing massively. The rapid pace of industrialization led to real wage growth of 60% between 1860 and 1890. This growth meant that American wages were much higher than those in Europe, especially for skilled workers, which drew in millions of European immigrants. The growth of railroads across the United States meant that large-scale commercial farming could happen. Millions of acres of land became feasible for farming once railroads were in place, providing a long-distance outlet for wheat cattle and hogs that reached all the way to Europe. Shipping live animals was slow and expensive, so major packing centers were set up in the Midwest that could ship meat in refrigerated freight cars to stores around the country. The rail cars were cooled by slabs of ice that had been harvested in the north in wintertime, stored for use in the warmer times of the year, and shipped around the country by rail. During the Gilded Age, the output of grain in the United States increased by 250%, coal by 800%, and miles of railway track by 570%. National networks for transportation and communication were created, and the corporation became the dominant form of business organization. Wealthy industrialists like Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, and Carnegie built out and financed the infrastructure of the United States, becoming fabulously wealthy in the process and were later labelled robber barons by their critics, who argued that their fortunes were made at the expense of the working class. Mom-and-pop businesses weren't going to be able to build out railroad networks or oil refineries. A single mile of rail track cost more to install than most small businesses were worth. So although workers' wages were rising a lot during this period, there was a real advantage associated with scale, and wealth inequality was very high too. 
The term the Gilded Age was actually not in use at the time. It came into use in the 1920s, taken from the name of a Mark Twain novel. It was a pejorative term used to describe an era of contrasting wealth and extreme poverty. The idea was that the promised Golden Age had turned out to be a period of serious social problems, masked by the thin gold gilding of economic expansion. Admire all businesses were worked. So although workers' wages were rising a lot during this period, there was a real advantage associated with scale, and wealth inequality was very high too. The term the Gilded Age was actually not in use at the time. It came into use in the 1920s, taken from the name of a Mark Twain novel. It was a pejorative term used to describe an era of contrasting wealth and extreme poverty. The idea was that the promised Golden Age had turned out to be a period of serious social problems, masked by the thin gold gilding of economic expansion. Admirers of the Gilded Age industrialists and financiers would not agree with that characterization, however, and see these men not as robber barons, but as captains of industry who built up the nation's economy and the non-profit sector through acts of philanthropy. This focus on philanthropy differentiated this group from European elites, who at the time mostly held on to their wealth, passing it down to their children. Andrew Carnegie donated over 90% of his wealth to charity, saying that philanthropy was the duty of great industrialists. Rockefeller donated over half of his entire net work to various charities over his life. These donations endowed thousands of colleges, hospitals, museums, academies, schools, music venues, public libraries and charities. When we look at modern American billionaires, they appear to have been inspired by this group, as many are very active philanthropists too. At the age of 11, Cornelius Vanderbilt quit school to begin working with his father, ferrying cargo in New York. By the age of 16, he was able to buy his own boat and share the profits with his parents, who had lent him some of the money. Through aggressive marketing, shrewd deal-making, and undercutting the competition, traits that would stick with him all of his life, he earned more than $1,000 in his first year. Vanderbilt was quick to recognize the importance of transportation to commerce in the rapidly growing country. He realized that infrastructure was needed and decided that he, rather than the government, would provide it. Over the next 40 years, he built the largest shipping empire in the world, an amazing feat. Right before the Civil War, Vanderbilt realized that rail was simply a better transportation technology. He sold all of his ships and invested everything he had into buying up and building out railroads, which allowed cheap and efficient transportation throughout the country, reduced transportation times, and linked up all of the parts of the country without direct access to waterways. As he was building out his railroads, he came into competition with the New York Central Railroad Company, a much larger firm who refused to do any deals with him. At 72 years old, he was 30 years past the average life expectancy, and his competitors saw him as an old man well past his prime.
Stop. Stop making Amazon sellers rich. I hate to tell you this, but every single time you shop on Amazon, you're making someone like me semi-passive income. That's right, someone like me who dropped out of three different colleges, and now I'm making a full-time living selling products on Amazon. Now, I wanna show you a trick on how you can tell how much. Here's a way to make investing a lot less complicated. Jeez. Trade just one stock. Sound? Unfortunately for them, Vanderbilt owned the only rail bridge in and out of New York City, the gateway to the country's largest port. Vanderbilt refused to allow their trains to use his bridge, creating a blockade between his competitors and the nation's busiest port. When news that their trains were cut off reached Wall Street, New York Central Railroad shares collapsed in value. As the insiders dumped their shares, Vanderbilt began slowly buying them up. In just days, Vanderbilt took control of his biggest competitor, creating the largest rail company in America. Rather than being past his prime, Vanderbilt was just approaching it. He eventually went on to own 40% of the nation's rail lines and soon became the richest man in America with a net worth of over $100 million, the equivalent of $100 billion today. The Great Railroad Boom saw new tracks crisscrossing the country, tying it together and allowing commerce to flow in a way that was previously unimaginable. The new industry provided over 180,000 jobs to both skilled and unskilled workers and allowed the industrial and agricultural economies to boom like never before. In 1869, near the peak of his success, Vanderbilt began building a train station in New York that would bring his three railroads together. He built it in a relatively remote and undeveloped tract of land north of New York City's center of commerce. Thousands of workers were employed over the next two years on the most ambitious construction project America had ever seen. Grand Central, his train station, was the biggest building in all of New York City at the time, and the biggest train station in the United States, covering some 22 acres. It might surprise New Yorkers today to hear that when built, Grand Central was in the outskirts of the city. In fact, Vanderbilt's advisors warned him at the time not to build in such a remote location. <laughs> but this just shows how much of an impact Vanderbilt had in shaping New York City and the rest of the country. Grand Central was, and still is, a wonderful building that demonstrates the importance of the rail industry at the time it was built, and the kind of wealth that that industry generated in the country. In 1870, Vanderbilt began looking for a new edge. The big money in the rail industry was in moving cargo rather than people. At the time, whale oil was the main fuel used for lighting and also for machine lubrication, but a new fuel, kerosene, was beginning to replace it. Vanderbilt wanted his railroads to be involved in transporting this new cargo. John D. Rockefeller, an oil man out of Ohio, believed that while gamblers drill for oil, businessmen refine it. He knew that if he could control refining, he could Trump control the entire oil industry. At the age of 24, using borrowed money, Rockefeller started a small refinery in Ohio, close to one of Vanderbilt's train lines. 
Rockefeller was the son of an actual con artist. His father had been a traveling snake oil salesman who was rarely home. Rockefeller didn't like his father and was very much his opposite. He was a deeply religious man who never drank alcohol and who gave at least 10% of his income to charity. John D. Rockefeller believed in thriftiness, hard work and efficiency, which he had learned from his mother. His father boasted in later years that he cheated his son every chance he got in order to keep him sharp. Rockefeller, when he was older, used to tell the story of a Baptist preacher who had told him to make as much money as he could and then give away as much as is possible. He claimed that at that moment, as a child, the financial plan of his life was formed. He believed very firmly that God wanted him to become rich so that he could make the world a better place. His business success was quite simply God's plan. Refineries at the time took crude oil and extracted kerosene from it. Kerosene made up around 60% of the crude oil. They would then dump the remaining 40% of oil waste in rivers or in massive sludge piles, polluting the local environment. Both drilling and refining at the time were dirty and dangerous businesses. Rockefeller, more due to his thrifty nature than anything else, didn't believe in waste. So unlike other refiners, none of the oil or waste products were dumped. He used some of the waste products to fuel the refinery. The rest was turned into lubricating oil, petroleum jelly, paraffin wax, and even tar for paving roads. Rockefeller ran the most efficient and profitable refineries around. Rockefeller was a relentless cost cutter. He manufactured his own pipes and his own oil barrels rather than pay too high of a markup. His oil was of high and consistent quality, and he named his company Standard Oil. Why that name? Well, because Standard Oil was the only company in the industry willing to guarantee a uniform quality of kerosene. Vanderbilt, of course, wanted to meet this young man, as the location of Rockefeller's refinery in Cleveland meant that Standard Oil might be a good freight customer for Vanderbilt's railroads. An exclusive deal with Rockefeller would mean Vanderbilt's trains could run at full capacity. When they met, Rockefeller negotiated an unheard of 30% discount on rail transportation, but agreed to ship more oil than he was actually producing at the time of the deal. Rockefeller had to scramble to increase the size of his operations so that he could fulfill his side of the bargain. It turned out that if there was one thing Rockefeller was good at, it was growing the size of his business. Have you ever seen a wealthy person or a wealthy family or a jet owner like, I got a jet, I'm sorry, you know? Have you ever done that, seen that and wondered? It was growing the size of his business. Having struck this deal, Rockefeller now had a number of very real competitive advantages. He was selling a high-quality branded product that customers trusted and was in high demand. Additionally, he had more efficient operations and lower transportation costs than anyone else in the industry. He could produce a better product than his competitors and undercut them in price. He quickly set about buying up every competitor he could.
Huh. Rockefeller would buy out the least efficient competing refiners and then either improve the efficiency of their operations or just shut down the refineries altogether. He would push for discounts on oil shipments, undercut his competition, and make all sorts of secret deals to get any advantage he could in business. In less than four months in 1872, in what was later known as the Cleveland Massacre, Standard Oil absorbed 22 of its 26 wow. Cleveland competitors. Yeah. Standard Oil rapidly became the largest producer of refined kerosene in the United States, and his deal with Vanderbilt meant that he could ship his product to homes throughout the country at incredibly cheap rates. Rockefeller's efforts made him rich, but they also brought American consumers cheaper kerosene and other oil byproducts than had been available before. Before 1870, oil light was something only the wealthy could afford. Over the following decade, kerosene became commonly available to the working and middle classes. The availability of affordable lighting provided many benefits to the country as a whole. It helped reduce crime after sundown. It extended the workday, making American businesses more productive than before. And it allowed average people to read and educate themselves during the evenings, which had never previously been possible. Over time, Rockefeller found himself producing more oil than Vanderbilt could transport. He had outgrown his deal. Vanderbilt's biggest competitor was a man named Thomas Scott the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. Scott, along with his protege, a young Scotsman named Andrew Carnegie, offered Rockefeller a better transportation deal than he could ever have gotten from Vanderbilt. To Vanderbilt's great frustration, Rockefeller mm -hmm. began skillfully playing the railroads against each other, mm -hmm. negotiating lower and lower transportation prices. With the railroads under his thumb, Rockefeller could supply every home in the nation with kerosene. And with all of that profit, Rockefeller began vertically integrating his business, buying up oil wells, equipment makers, the entire oil industry. At the age of 33, John D. Rockefeller was now the most powerful man in the country. Vanderbilt and Scott realized, maybe a bit too late, that together they had possibly created a monster. <laughs> they decided that the only way to combat Rockefeller was for the railroads to start working together and fixing prices. They decided to cooperate with each other and pull all of Rockefeller's cheap transportation deals. To Rockefeller, this oh, was an God. absolute declaration of war, <laughs> and he wasn't going to let the railroads beat him with a dirty trick like this. In the refineries, oil was moved around over short distances using large pipes, pipes that Rockefeller had hired his own plumbers to build rather than pay a markup on. Rockefeller realized that if those pipes could transport oil over short distances, they could possibly also transport oil over longer distances. If Rockefeller could build a pipeline large enough, he would be able to cut the railroads out of the oil business altogether. Now, oil pipelines had been attempted before, but they always failed as the oil wouldn't flow if the pipe was not airtight. And this was not an easy problem to solve. 
Additionally, lots of pumping stations would be needed to be built along the pipeline to keep it flowing. Stitching together hundreds of pieces of metal with no air leaks and numerous pumping stations mm. seemed an impossible task. Nonetheless, Rockefeller hired the best and smartest people to solve this problem, and his workers began to work around the clock, laying over a mile and a half of pipeline every day. Wow. By the time Rockefeller's pipeline was finished, huh. it was over 4,000 miles long, and it connected thousands of the world's most lucrative oil wells directly into Rockefeller's refineries. He had brought an end to the influence of railroads on the oil business and revolutionized the way energy products are transported. Yeah, now, Thomas Scott yeah, still controlled the railway to Pittsburgh, where Rockefeller's pipelines didn't yet reach. The two men, who by this point hated each other, were unable to come to terms on transportation costs. Rockefeller, unwilling to give an inch, shut down his refineries in Pittsburgh. This move cost Rockefeller a fortune, hmm. but it destroyed the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. Wow. Scott was forced to lay off tens of thousands of workers and to drastically cut wages in order to... Railroad workers reacted to the cuts by going on strike and rioting in Pittsburgh. The city was the epicenter of the worst violence in the nation during the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. More than 39 buildings and over a thousand train cars were destroyed in the violence, and Thomas Scott's company was ruined. For 25 years, railroads had been the biggest industry in the United States, and anyone who could raise money had done so and had started laying tracks. What if you could stick it to the government while also helping people recover funds from foreclosed homes? There is a lot of money available for people whose homes are foreclosed that the government is just holding on to. Tens of thousands of dollars that are just sitting in government slush funds somewhere. The fact is over 3,000 property owners get foreclosed on every day. That adds up to about $14 million in tax sale foreclosures each and every day. That's right. The government collects about $14 million a day in tax sale foreclosure revenue. It's shocking, but it's it's true. Now, what those property owners don't know is that they're entitled to claim back the extra money called the tax overages when their house is sold for more than what was owed. This can amount to five or six figures in reclaimable money, which is desperately needed. And anyone who could raise money had done so and had started laying tracks. Rockefeller's oil had made up nearly 40% of the cargo shipped on the rails, and now it was suddenly transitioning to pipelines. There had been a huge railroad investment bubble, and now there was huge overcapacity. Losing cargo meant losing money. Railroad companies began going bankrupt. Vanderbilt was well capitalized and was able to make it through the industry collapse. He died in 1877 with an estimated net worth of $105 million. Scott died That's a year later in 1878 with his business in ruins. The depression dead. lasted until 1879, and by the time it was over, one third of the country's railroad companies had gone bankrupt. The railroad-based economy of the United States had been overtaken by the oil boom. 
During the depression that was brought about by, amongst other things, the collapse of the rail industry, Rockefeller managed to further consolidate the oil business. He bought up Scott's rail assets at rock bottom prices too. Rockefeller described it as the most difficult, stressful and unpleasant time of his life. In the aftermath, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania indicted Rockefeller on charges of monopolizing the oil trade. This was an accusation he would find himself dealing with and fighting for the rest of his life. Despite improving the quality and availability of oil products while greatly reducing their cost to the general public, the price of kerosene had fallen by nearly 80% since Rockefeller had entered the business. Standard Oil's business practices were creating a lot of controversy. Rockefeller was attacked by the press and by politicians for his monopolistic business practices, mm -hmm. giving momentum to the antitrust movement. Mm -hmm. Rockefeller, by this point, controlled 90% of the world's oil production. He mm -hmm. owned oil wells, pipelines, mm -hmm. refineries, rail assets, and distribution. His company, Standard Oil, was the nation's first monopoly. He wasn't done, though. In the 1890s, Rockefeller expanded into iron ore and ore transportation business, leading to a collision with Andrew Carnegie, mm. Thomas Scott's former protege. Andrew Carnegie, the man who would one day become the wealthiest man in the world, grew up in poverty in Scotland. His father was a handloom weaver who was put out of work by the introduction of steam-powered looms. At the age of 12, Carnegie arrived in the United States with his parents in search of a better life. He and his father first began working for a cotton mill. Later, Andrew got a job at a telegraph company. And then at the age of 18, he started working for the Pennsylvania 18. Railroad Company, where he had met the company's president, Thomas Scott. By the age of 24, he was made the superintendent of the Western Division, quite a senior position for such a young man. After a few years, Carnegie left the Pennsylvania Railroad Company to run the Keystone Bridge Company. His success building bridges was tied to his history and contacts in the railroad industry, as the railroads not only needed bridges built, but a bridge building company needed to transport the necessary steel and Carnegie could negotiate good prices with his former colleagues. When Carnegie first heard of James Eade's plan to build a bridge over the Mississippi River at St. Louis, he fought to win the contract. It was an extremely complex and important project. A bridge spanning the Mississippi River would connect the east of the country to the west like never before. It would allow trains to take a more direct route across the country without having to unload cargo onto ferries and reload the cargo onto trains on the other side of the Mississippi. The Eads Bridge would be the first bridge across the Mississippi south of the Missouri River. It was also an important proof of concept for steel construction technology. When the bridge was completed, it became the world's first important steel structure of any type and revolutionized the way bridges and later buildings were built. Eads secured 47 patents during his lifetime, and many of those were taken out for parts of the bridge's structure and devices for its construction. 
To deal with the size and the power of the Mississippi River, the Eads Bridge had to be built out of structural steel rather than wrought iron, which was the default material for large structures up until that point. The bridge's foundations were the deepest underwater constructions in the world at the time and were installed using pneumatic caissons. Its center arch was the longest rigid span ever built at the time, at 520 feet. The method of constructing the arches is cited as the first use of the cantilever principle for a large bridge. These engineering principles were later used to build the Brooklyn Bridge, which began construction a few years later. Recognizing its future, Carnegie turned his focus to the steel industry. At the time, steel was extremely expensive and difficult to mass produce. For this reason, it was mostly used to make small items like tableware. One of Carnegie's innovations was the cheap and efficient mass production of steel by improving on the Bessemer process, which allowed the high carbon content of pig iron to be burnt away during steel production. Steel prices dropped as a result of this innovation, and there was a whole new market for steel now that it was affordable and more easily produced. Sprawled over a hundred acres just outside of Pittsburgh, Carnegie built the largest steel mill in the nation. It was capable of rolling out 225 tons of steel per day. His biggest customers were, of course, the railroads, but after years of overbuilding and due to Rockefeller's new pipelines, the railroads were now struggling to stay in business. Audible is the best place to listen for everyone, for story people, comedy people. Desperate for a new market, Carnegie noticed the rapid urbanization taking place in cities like Chicago and New York. Buildings were going up as quickly as possible, and Carnegie saw that the future of the steel industry was not in rails, but in structural steel, in girders and beams that could be used to build skyscrapers. When the world's first skyscraper was built in Chicago, its thin brick walls hung on a structure manufactured from Carnegie Steel. Over the next few years, over 100,000 new buildings were erected in Chicago alone. The modern American city was being built using Carnegie Steel, and the skyscraper boom made Andrew Carnegie one of the wealthiest men in the world. Efficiency became Carnegie's focus. He introduced every cost-cutting innovation available, and by 1900, his plants were producing more steel than all of Great Britain was. Much like Rockefeller, Carnegie began vertically integrating his business. As he grew, he went on to control the most extensive integrated steel operation ever owned by an individual. His success did come at a cost, though. He had been very vocal about the rights of workers to unionize in other industries, but laborers in his steel mills worked 12-hour days, seven days a week, in hot and dangerous conditions. When industrial unrest stopped work at his main plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania, 
Carnegie, who was visiting family in Scotland at the time, supported his plant manager, who locked out the workers and hired armed Pinkerton guards to break the strike, bringing in replacement workers. In the conflict that followed, 12 people were killed. Although Carnegie won the battle, he emerged with his reputation severely tarnished. In 1900, the 64-year-old Carnegie sold his entire steelmaking operation to J.P. Morgan for $480 million. Morgan shook on the deal, saying, Congratulations, Mr. Carnegie. You are now the richest man in the world. Carnegie spent the rest of his life giving his vast fortune away. He had written an essay entitled Wealth, in which he argued that the duties of a wealthy man were to live modestly and to use his surplus money for the public good. The man who dies rich, according to Carnegie, dies disgraced. Carnegie spent a large portion of his wealth setting up more than 2,500 public libraries and supporting universities and colleges. By the time of his death in 1919, Carnegie had given away the majority of his wealth. Rockefeller and his son continued consolidating the oil industry until he retired in 1911. At that point, Standard Oil had a 70% market share of the refined oil market. The business had grown significantly due to the emergence of the automobile, which had been adopted in part as an environmental response to the problem of using horses for transportation in dense urban environments. Cities had become unlivable due to the buildup of animal waste, which was causing all sorts of health problems. In 1911, the Supreme Court found Standard Oil in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The court ruled that the trust engaged in illegal monopoly practices and ordered it to be broken up into 34 new companies. Most of the big oil companies that you've heard of today came from Rockefeller's Standard Oil. Once he retired, Rockefeller, who had always been charitable, donated more than half a billion dollars to various educational, religious, and scientific causes. He funded the establishment of the University of Chicago and the Rockefeller Institute. He passed away in 1937 at 97 years old. So how wealthy were the robber barons? Well, of the group, Rockefeller was the wealthiest of them all. He was worth around $1.5 billion by the time he died. If we inflation adjust that number, it would become $31 billion today. But that inflation adjustment calculation assumes that the money would have been kept in a bank account earning the risk-free rate for the last 80 or so years. Rockefeller didn't have his money in cash. He owned a significant portion of the U.S. energy industry. Rockefeller's wealth was one and a half percent of American GDP at the time he died. Today, a man whose wealth was one and a half percent of American GDP would be worth $345 billion. According to this metric, he was and still is the richest individual in American business and economic history. Today, Elon Musk is the wealthiest American and is worth $200 billion. Warren Buffett is worth $100 billion after giving half of his fortune to charity. 
neither really come close to the wealth of Rockefeller. The robber barons were extremely wealthy and they enriched both themselves and the nation as a whole. The businesses they built turned the United States into the world's greatest industrial power. They didn't grow wealthy through government handouts, though. At the time, government spending came to less than 3% of national income. So the US government just didn't have the ability to spend enough to make them that wealthy. Their efficient operations made them rich, but they also brought down the cost of important commodities for all Americans. Farmers across the country benefited from Vanderbilt's railroads, which allowed them to bring their goods to market. The price of kerosene declined by two thirds during the Gilded Age, as economies of scale allowed for greater profits at lower prices. The price of steel fell too, over the same time frame, thanks to Andrew Carnegie's emphasis on innovative processes and efficiency. Although the Gilded Age industrialists wanted to maximize profits by paying the lowest wages they could, they also provided jobs for millions of people. Their demand for labor pushed incomes in the United States above European incomes at the time, which attracted millions of workers to the country. These workers flooded to America at a time when there were no immigration controls, and they heard from their friends and family of the opportunities and high wages available in the new world. There's almost no period in human history where the ordinary man saw such rapid and widespread an increase in well-being as during the second half of the 19th century. Monopolies are bad for the economy, they're bad for customers and for workers, as monopolists are under no pressure to innovate and can keep prices high and wages low. Around the turn of the century, new laws were passed forbidding anti-competitive practices, and that had become necessary because of the huge monopolies that had been built up. While these men were far from being perfect, I'm not sure that it's reasonable to characterize them as robber barons. That title came from a book called The Robber Barons by Matthew Josephson, a left-wing journalist who wrote the book in 1934 in the depths of the Great Depression. In his book, he points at all profits as evidence of wrongdoing. The myth of the robber barons comes from the fallacy that one man's gain must relate to another man's loss. When you examine the lives of the 19th century industrialists, they may have been flawed individuals, but they built the modern economy, which made the average American and the country as a whole considerably richer. If you enjoyed this video, you should watch this one next. Have a great week and talk to you again soon. Bye. Americans can get $7,300 in stimulus cash thanks to the new Affordable Health Care Act. Anyone born after 1957 will receive cash compensation, $0 medical, dental, vision, and more. If approved, you will receive an HSA card with $7,300. Use it for utilities, rent, or groceries. You can even use it on apps like Uber, DoorDash, and Amazon.
at up to $3,650 for each individual or $7,300 per household. Ever pay for prescriptions, doctor visits, ambulances, or right. hospitals ever again? Um, so there is an Let's uh, check and see what's going on about. Trump going to fucking jail. Indictments looming everywhere. Already covered that one. Book of Enoch. Under Sphinx Real Hall of Records. Ancient Ancient Secret. Documentaries. Um started to listen to Grey Wolf to escape a bad Hitler, but oh this is great. Origins of religion, I've already covered that. Venezuela's Jurassic Park. Find a real last world. Tracks. Hmm. Granite Rock, Cut Dome. Of ancient Vectivan Coil Temple carved with up with ultimate precision located in in uh, Tamil Nadu temple is an example of incredible engineering of ancient Bharat temples carved out from a single rock 25 feet in depth Uh, the sculptures and the carvings are indicative of Pandian art during the period. The granite rock looks like a blooming lotus with hills surrounding it on three sides. Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. Classified alien encounters um, by traumatologist. Lost civilization discovered in the Americas. Sex in the scriptures. Bible secrets revealed. History, history channel. Past 2023 grocery plus allowance card. Helping U.S. seniors combat that. the rising cost. This program explores the mysteries of the Bible from a variety of historical and theological perspectives which have been debated for centuries. For thousands of years, the Bible has been a source of moral guidance for millions of people around the world. It is a sacred text intended to be a part of our daily lives. But could the Bible contain contradictions and hidden meanings about what is right and what is wrong when it comes to sex. The 
Bible is fundamentally about the relationship of people to one another. If you read the Bible with open eyes, you will be shocked at the sexuality, the sinfulness. There's no question that the Song of Solomon is a very sensuous and erotic text. There's a lot of sex in the Bible, but there's a lot more sex in the Bible than you would think. It is one of the most important books ever sex written. Sex in the scriptures. Its contents have been studied, debated, and fought over for thousands of years. But does the Bible also contain secrets? Roman Empire. Secret prophecies. Secret characters. Secret texts. Now, for the first time, an extraordinary series will challenge everything we think, everything we know, and everything we believe about the Bible. And sex, sexy time. The Hebrew Bible, also known as the Old Testament, begins with the story of God's creation of the world. In the first chapter of the book of Genesis, God forms man and woman in his own image. He blesses them and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. This commandment is the first reference to the act of procreation in the Bible and, according to many scholars, sets the tone for the numerous stories of sex and sexual behavior that follow. Sex and the Bible are intimately uh, related to one another because the Bible claims to tell the story of, of human history. And of course, human relations and sexual relations are an integral part, a vital part, quite literally, from the Latin vita of human history. Sex in the Bible appears in different places and in, in, in different variations. In other words, sometimes sex is just part of the story. There are also cases where sex is part of laws, legislation, and in those cases, it's part of the structuring of, of society's behavior in general. A lot of people look to the Bible for guidance in a lot of areas, so it shouldn't be surprising that people look to it for sexual guidance as well. There's a lot of sex in the Bible, but there's a lot more sex in the Bible than you would think. The first five books of the Old Testament, called the Torah, were intended to guide the Israelites' religious and civil behavior, as well as strengthen their identity as a people and preserve their heritage. One of the great themes of the Bible is that the world around Israel was corrupt and that the kingdom of Israel was the one refuge for the righteous. This is a continuous drumbeat throughout the Bible. As they roamed the barren environments of the ancient Middle East, the early Israelites lacked a homeland, a well-defined community, and even a traditional social structure. Seeking rules for everyday life 
Moses' followers relied on the Torah for detailed instructions on everything from preparing food to cleaning a wound and even having sex. If you look at Jewish sexual laws, um, they seem to be designed to ensure for procreation. For example, a man and woman having intercourse and the man ejaculates outside the woman's body in order to prevent conception. That's forbidden. The only sexual practices that are outlawed in the Hebrew Bible are outlawed because if a child was to be born, it's not going to result in a legitimate Jewish child. If you look at biblical rules about planting seeds, they thought of it all as seed. The word for semen is seed, and so is the word for descendants, right? This is your seed, your offspring. That comes from people who are nomads, and their survival depends on the fertility of the flocks and the fertility of the people. So it makes a lot of sense that the sexual laws are directed toward procreation. There actually seems to be a recognition in Genesis that... Hey guys, Grant Cardone, hope you're doing well today. Uh, here we are going into 2023 and it's going to be breakable for some and unbreakable for me and those that... actually seems to be a recognition in Genesis that there's not enough people in your group. Stories in Genesis are framed by these long lists of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. The whole drama is driven by, oh, we better get some begetting here. We need to beget, otherwise we're not going to have a community. The third book of the Torah, Leviticus, lays out detailed laws for the faithful, including guidelines for marriage, family, inheritance, and sexual behavior. However, the book of Leviticus is the priestly code. It's the laws according to the priesthood of ancient Israel. And we all know that priests and rabbis and ministers tend to be fairly strict about what constitutes proper behavior among the laity. So Leviticus has very, very strict rules about the sexual aspect of life. We have this interesting law in the Hebrew Bible that explains that if the eldest son in a family gets married but fails to have children before dying, that it was the responsibility of the next-born son to marry the deceased brother's wife and to have children on his behalf. The child would be regarded as the offspring of her dead husband, as the heir of his property, and would thus give the widowed woman a role in the community and access to her husband's uh, property, which she would not otherwise have. Later in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, this law is demonstrated in the story of a grieving widow. Living in Moab, Ruth, a recent convert to Jewish beliefs, and now without a husband, finds herself with few rights and fewer options. But rather than retreating to her family home in another country, she pledges to stay with her dead husband's mother, Naomi saying, thy people will be my people, thy God, my God. The story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, which is often offered 
in sermons and Sunday school lessons as an example of a dutiful wife and widow is in fact a story about sex. Ruth, as a widowed woman, is entitled to be married or impregnated by a male relative of her dead husband. This was the tradition of biblical law in ancient times. According to the Bible, Naomi instructs Ruth to meet Boaz, believed to be the closest male relative to Ruth's deceased husband, in his tent after he's gone to bed. When Ruth encounters him, she does something that might seem odd to the modern reader. She uncovers his feet. In the Old Testament, feet is a euphemism for male genitalia. Uh -huh. So when Ruth sneaks into Boaz's tent and uncovers his feet, she's not giving him a foot rub. Uh -huh. That's not what's happening here. This is concealed from the reader by one of the favorite devices of the biblical censor, which is to use idiomatic expressions that conceal the real meaning. Boaz wants to fulfill the marriage law in Leviticus. He woos her, and no doubt that was a culmination of their hopes and dreams. Ruth becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, Obed, who later becomes grandfather of David, the eventual king of Israel. And what's interesting is that line of David would also be the line through whom Jesus Iron. would eventually arise. Like a lion in Zion. Is it possible the procreation laws in the Torah resulted in the birth of Jesus and ultimately the formation of Christianity? And could the requirement to produce offspring also explain the circumstances surrounding the children of Abraham? the founding father of the Israelites. According to chapter 16 in the book of Genesis, Abraham has a wife named Sarah, but they are childless. Abraham is very old, Sarah is very old, they don't have any children, and yet God promised them all these children. When Sarah thought that she was never going to get pregnant, she actually gave Abram her servant, Hagar. The story of Abraham is particularly touching because Sarah is supposedly childless and encourages Abraham to have sex with his slave Hagar so that he can perpetuate his line, so that he can have children. This was the, the highest calling of any human being, was to be fruitful and multiply. The laws are very different than they are now. So when Abraham takes Hagar and has children with her, it's a way to have legitimate offspring. It was not uncommon in the ancient Near East for a couple who couldn't have children of their own to turn to a surrogate mother. The notion of a surrogate may seem strange to the modern reader, but it is actually sanctioned by the Torah. For the ancient Israelites, the only thing more important than having a child is having as many children as possible. A man can have more than one wife because you can have more chances of having more descendants and a larger household and just making yourself that much more important. Wells Fargo lets you know where you stand with your FICO credit score. What if you knew where you stood with everything? And a larger household and just making yourself that much more important. People who wrote the Bible valued above all bearing and rearing of children. 
And that's why some sexual conduct that we might find appalling, those are all approved because they result in procreation. Might the stories concerning sexual behavior and moral codes, as depicted in the Bible, be considered out of date or irrelevant by today's standards? Or might they still provide useful and important guidelines for all of us, even today? Perhaps the answer can be found by examining another sacred text, one that many Bible scholars believe reveals a shocking truth about the sacrament of marriage. Shocking. Shocker. Severus. Less than five miles northwest of Nazareth, this ancient capital city of the northern province of Galilee was believed to have been built by the ancient Assyrians as early as the 7th century BC and once served as a center of religious and spiritual life. According to scholars, Jesus most likely visited here to preach and conduct business. Sepphoris, which was about an hour's walk from Nazareth, was this cosmopolitan urban city. It was a cultural and economic hub, uh, really the first city that Galilee had ever seen. If Jesus did visit Sepphoris, then that's likely the place where he would have first been exposed to Greco-Roman culture. In the New Testament Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, a strict and very devout Jewish leader known as a Pharisee, whom scholars now believe was living in Sepphoris, invited Jesus to join him for dinner. During the meal, a woman burst into the room, approached Jesus and fell to the floor crying. She then used her own tears and hair to wipe his feet clean. Meals at this time were broken actually into two parts. The part where you eat, and then the part where the Jews might discuss the Torah. And it's during this time when less righteous people would have the dancing boys and the dancing girls and the, and the sex and the orgies. It's at this time that this woman breaks in. The Gospel of Luke says that this woman is a woman of the city a sinner, a prostitute. The prostitutes in antiquity were slaves, or they were impoverished women. In the biblical story, it says that the men around Jesus were horrified that this woman did this. And yet, Jesus says, no, no. He holds her up as a model of worship of him. But why did Jesus show such consideration to a prostitute? And what does this tell us about the New Testament's attitude towards sex and sexual behavior, even outside of marriage and childbearing? Certainly a popular way of reading the gospel account of Jesus consorting with prostitutes is that Jesus has a kind of open attitude towards women of all sorts, which is great, actually, given the way that real prostitutes in the Greco-Mormon world were being treated. Jesus went out of his way I to think lift it's a lie. up the marginalized people. Jesus was a big social a justice guy, right? He was actually looking for the downtrodden, the oppressed. Women and he was like, who's women? 
turning them into prostitutes. If you were one of the Pharisees, then you would have heard these stories about God welcoming lost things and celebrating over lost things. If, however, you were one of the down and outs of society, you would have just heard Jesus say that God welcomes you back with open arms and celebrates over your return. But just as Jesus was openly tolerant to being in the company of sinners and prostitutes, his views on traditional marriage were equally unconventional. Jesus seems to be quite opposed to marriage. He seems to be all about sort of not getting married, not having sexual relationships, and living this life in sort of pursuit of God. What's striking about the teachings of Jesus is he seems to ignore any of that focus on having children and anything about the sacredness of marriage. According to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, Jesus says well, that family the is not decided by bloodline, but rather by adhering to God's will. He goes on to explain that there is no marriage in the kingdom they of heaven. Shall rise from the day, in fact, it wasn't until hundreds of years after Jesus' death when Christianity became more. We're listening to this thing about Hoover. Hoover said, I can do the job, but I won't do the job if I have got to answer to anyone else but you. At 30, Hoover became director of the FBI. He kept the position for 48 years wow. to his death. Jeez. There is nothing mysterious about the manner the Federal Bureau of Investigation works. Its formula is a simple one. Intensive training, carefully investigated, and highly efficient personnel, plus rigid requirements in regard to conduct, intelligence, and integrity. Hoover established special agents, the G-Men, who answered only to him, not even the Attorney General or the President. His department had to be above reproach. His agents were all between 25 and 35, white, attractive, and middle class. They wore suits, white shirts, hats, and ties. The single men lived like monks. Hoover even used covert methods to split up couples. No blacks, no Hispanics, no women, no when he arrived, there were three female agents. Two were fired. The third ended her days in a psychiatric hospital, huh. threatening to kill Hoover when she got out. <laughs> he also got rid of those with spots, big ears, damp hands, and the bald and fat. Hmm. Agents he found overweight had to diet and were weighed each month under threat. The agents secretly called Hoover Kid Napoleon because he was short. His swivel chair was at a maximum height and mounted on a platform. Visitors were seated on a low couch. <laughs> like Howard Hughes, Hoover was paranoid about germs. He installed an ultraviolet device in his office to eradicate them. An employee was responsible for swatting flies. <laughs> One branch of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the G-Man. This is a Bureau of Scientific Crime Detection. New, modern, up to the minute, in action day and night. The FBI never sleeps. The G-Men have become a legend. So what's the mystery behind their badge? There's heroism, we know that. In addition 
he decided to centralize the rudimentary taking of fingerprint identification. Yes, Hoover organized it, put people in charge, got the budget to pay for it, brought it to Washington, and it became the center of the FBI's uh, actual power base with police around the country. Hoover established the world's largest crime lab. 24 hours a day, experts studied ballistics, poisons, hairs, fabric fibers, anonymous letters, and handwriting. The lab and its identification division became the key to Hoover's power. The FBI established a monopoly over all the country's criminal information. At Hoover's death, the fingerprint archives had files on 159 million people. In 1929, the stock market crash plunged America into chaos. Hoover was 34. The public remained too unaware of his new bureau for his taste and that of his boss. In 1932, when the child of the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh was kidnapped, America was shattered and Hoover took advantage. Shattered. He had the president send him to oversee the case. To no avail, the baby's body was found just days later. Hoover used this the investigation had been slowed by different state jurisdictions. Hoover asked Franklin Roosevelt to increase his power. From then on, his agents had the right to operate in all states, to bear weapons, and Hoover could investigate anyone he deemed a threat. He united all the information services in one office, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, under his sole direction. Johnson, I think it's going to be necessary to enlarge the detail of agents at Little Rock, Arkansas. And consequently, I think we will have to transfer two agents from St. Louis to Little Rock, selecting Agent Bush and Agent Hardy for that detail. He was the first politician to understand the media's power and how to use it. The Mafia gave him his chance. <laughs> At this time, the popular heroes who made front-page news were the gangsters. Machine Gun Kelly, Babyface Nelson, Ma Baker, and the famous Bonnie and Clyde. Hoover, with his genius for communication, reconstructed their deaths for the press. Director Hoover, supervising field practice, and the target might be a gangster car. This is what happened to Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow in a battle with local officers. hated the gangster's popularity, especially John Dillinger, known as public enemy number one. Dillinger mocked the FBI, escaping them every time. When Hoover's right-hand man, Melvin Purvis, finally shot down Dillinger, Hoover organized a late-night press conference to bask in the glory. <laughs> In 
1935, after 600 days of war on crime, Hoover and his G-men rid America of its gangsters and became heroes in turn, hyping their exploits to the press. The plane brings Machine Gun Kelly and his wife Catherine from Memphis, Tennessee. Less than 90 days after the kidnapping, 15 were convicted. Six get life. Bailey and Kelly in Alcatraz. When Machine Gun Kelly was captured, he begged, G-Men don't shoot, meaning government men, and the name G-Men flashed in the news. <laughs> Hoover negotiated a contract for control over G-Men, a radio show in the FBI's seats. He made every magazine cover as the symbol of national security and created Division 8, a press service dedicated to the glory of himself and the FBI. In 1936, millions of Americans were addicted to the tales of the G-Men. <laughs> Children played with FBI badges and guns and slept in FBI pajamas. <laughs> Hoover even became a cartoon hero. It's because of James Hoover that they became heroes. And they started to show up in movies. The no longer was the bad guy the one to win at the end. It was the G-Man who, who won at the end of the day and literally did put this country on the path of uh, law and order in a major way. Before World War II, many saw Hitler as the obvious bastion against communism. Airman Charles Lindbergh and Joseph Kennedy, father of John F. Kennedy, and U.S. ambassador to London, publicly called for an alliance with Hitler. They wanted the support of Hoover, a renowned anti-communist, who not only refused, but persuaded President Roosevelt that the Nazi threat was more dangerous than communism. The U.S. government uh, decided to look at the some 400,000 Germans who lived in the United States, and they created a, a department called the Radical Division within the Justice Department. Jacob, who was part of those individuals looking for these Germans, looking at them to decide who was the good German and who was the bad German, who was your spying, who was not spying. And it set him on a course, this is Jay Edgar, of being able to look underneath the floor mat, looked behind the individual. He got to know what was lurking in the dark shadows of America. And he was startled by what he saw. Hoover built up hundreds of files on Germans living in the U.S. and American Nazi Party members, worried by their rise in power. Dozens of Nazi spies were brought to justice. The hunt for subversives began. The fear was that Nazi spies were everywhere, including Hollywood where star Errol Flynn was accused of being a Nazi agent. In June 1939, when the war broke out in Europe, Roosevelt announced that Hoover would lead the fight against espionage and sabotage. In May 1940, Roosevelt authorized Hoover to use phone tap. I was down to talk to my doctor about Rebelsis. Ask your health provider about Rebelsis today. In May 1940, Roosevelt authorized Hoover to use phone taps, formally prohibited. Hoover's first choice to target was the president's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. Hoover suspected an affair with a soldier, Joseph Bush. He bugged Eleanor's hotel room and room. He found no proof of a sexual relationship. 
Eleanor found the microphones and went to her husband. But Roosevelt seemed more worried about the young soldier, who he transferred the next day to the Pacific. Eleanor Roosevelt's file contained 449 pages. <laughs> FBI espionage for the White House allowed Hoover to increase his collection of files. He assembled information on every politician and began dealing directly with Roosevelt, cutting out his media December 7, 1941. The U.S. was attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. America was in shock. Hoover was blamed for not taking seriously the statement of a double agent, Popov, warning of the attack. Hoover saved his reputation by sporting conspiracies and bombings organized by pro-Nazis. His British beat came in 1942. George Dash the leader of a group of saboteurs arrived by submarine off Long Island with seven other spies. Their mission was to blow up the Niagara Dam. But strangely, Dash warned the FBI. Hoover saw a moment godsend and called the press to announce the FBI had caught eight Nazi spies. He never mentioned Dash and busted him with the others. It won Hoover the Congressional Gold Medal. Later, questions were raised as to Dash's role. Was he a U.S. agent who infiltrated the group and been sacrificed to save other U.S. spies? To this day, nobody knows. On April 12, 1945, Roosevelt died. The war was almost over. President Truman was showing concern about the power of Hoover and the FBI. In a May 12th memo, he wrote, We don't want a Gestapo or secret police. Some in the FBI are meddling in sex scandals and blackmail instead of catching criminals. It has to stop. When Truman discovered how Roosevelt used Hoover for phone taps, he wrote, What the hell is that crap? Tell the FBI we don't have time for this kind of shit. But Truman changed his mind when he discovered that the file of his opponent, Tommy Cochran, a former Truman aide who switched camps, had 5,000 pages of compromising wiretaps. He saw the advantage of political espionage and encouraged Hoover to continue, making him his confidant, but also calling him his debt. Now, Hoover wanted the FBI to become a world network. After this, a worried Truman created the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, which answered to the president and excluded Hoover. Hoover banned his FBI agents from sharing information with the CIA. On August 6, 1945, to end the war with Japan, Truman launched an atomic bomb over Hiroshima. 200,000 died. On October 16, 1945, the physicist Robert Oppenheimer, director of the Manhattan Project, resigned and began campaigning against the atomic bomb. Hoover suspected that Russian spies infiltrated the project and spawned with information. Truman was skeptical. However, in 1990, Russian archives showed they had over 30 Russian agents within the project. 
On April 16, 1945, Senator Bernard Baruch declared America's entry into the Cold War. Truman ordered all civil servants to undergo a loyalty test. The House Un-American Activities Committee was formed. Congress gave Hoover a complete authority over these investigations, making him a hero. He made the Newsweek cover entitled, How to Fight Communism. Hoover saw that accusing stars of communism would attract more attention than going after ordinary citizens. On October 20, 1947, the first hearings of the House of Un-American Activities Committee began with Gary Cooper, Robert Taylor, and Ronald Reagan. Hoover also put pressure on the studio heads to send him all actors suspected of communism. This campaign against Hollywood virtually destroyed the movie industry, which was already suffering yeah. from the advent of television. <laughs> on October 21st, 19 screenwriters and directors were summoned and asked, are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? The first 10 took the Fifth Amendment. Only the 11th, Bertolt Brecht, swore to never having been a communist. He was congratulated by the committee. The first 10 your were fucking business. On October 24th, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Frank Sinatra, and Ava Gardner came to Washington in support of the convicted 10. Hoover, furious, threatened to ruin their careers. They all backed off and denied any communist sympathies. You have to understand the context of the time, and, and Hoover, Hoover acted within that power. context. And um, he acted within the context of anti-communist hysteria or anti-communist concern. There was, there was real and there was exaggerated concern about communist influence in, in America. At the same time, a file was opened for a Hollywood actor under the number 100-382196. Height six foot one. Weight 174 pounds. Eyes blue. Name Ronald Reagan. Huh. Hoover knew Reagan, then a Democrat, had mafia <laughs> ties through his friend and lawyer, Sidney Korshak. When Reagan became president of the Screen Actors Guild, which defended its members against the committee, Hoover brought up this dubious association. Under threat, Reagan changed sides, becoming an agent for Hoover under the code number T10. He secretly communicated the names of actors and actresses with suspected communist ties while remaining their union president. Wow. In 1952, one of the most surprising events occurred when Reagan fell in love with an actress, Nancy Davis, whose name appeared on the communist meeting lists. Reagan implicated another unknown actress by the same name and cleared his loved one. Hoover closed the file. <sighs> Hoover's files accumulated as writers and intellectuals what took their the turn. What the fuck was that about? They were anonymous, but no one could find a trace of the FBI. He dated Only another Hoover one? Had access, and, and he then circulated material Hoover? confidentially. <laughs> the fuck? Dashiell Hammett, as writers and intellectuals took their turn. House of Un-American Activities Committee began with Gary Cooper, Robert Taylor, and Ronald Reagan. Hoover also put pressure on the studio heads to send him all actors suspected of communism. This campaign against Hollywood virtually destroyed the movie industry, which was already suffering from the advent of television. On October 21st, 19 screenwriters and directors were summoned and asked, Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the McCarthy Communist Party? McCarthy is, um... 
the first ten took the Fifth Amendment. Only the eleventh, Bertolt Brecht, swore to never having been a communist. On other actors and actresses. Red fever, comma, McCarthyist. Union members and anyone on the left, exclamation points. And many other high he was congratulated by the committee. The first ten were convicted. On October 24th, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Frank Sinatra, and Ava Gardner came to Washington in support of the convicted ten. Hoover, furious, threatened to ruin their careers. They all backed off and denied any communist sympathies. You have to understand the context of the time, and, and Hoover, Hoover acted within that context. And... Um, he acted within the context of anti-communist hysteria or anti-communist concern. There was, there was real and there was exaggerated concern about communist influence in, in America. At the same time, a file was opened for a Hollywood actor under the number 100... Exclamation point. Dash three eight two one nine six. Height six foot one. Weight one hundred and seventy four pounds. Eyes blue. Name Ronald Reagan. Hoover knew Reagan, then a Democrat, had mafia ties through his friend and lawyer, Sidney Korshak. When Reagan became president of the Screen Actors Guild, which defended its members against the committee, Hoover brought up this dubious association. Under threat, Reagan changed sides. 
becoming an agent for Hoover under the code number T-10. He secretly communicated the names of actors and actresses with suspected communist ties while remaining their union president. In 1952, one of the most surprising events occurred when Reagan fell in love with an actress, Nancy Davis, whose name appeared on the communist meeting list. Reagan implicated another unknown actress by the same name and cleared his loved one. Hoover closed the file. Fucking weird. Hoover's files accumulated as writers and intellectuals took their turn. They were anonymous, so no one could find a trace of the FBI. Only Hoover had access, and he circulated material confidentially. Nashville Hammett, Thomas Mann, Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Aldous Huxley, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, Picasso, and even Albert Einstein had secret files. Truman, worried, wanted to get rid of Hoover, but he was too popular. Attorney General Howard McGrath is quoted as saying, Hoover is too powerful to be manipulated. What happened with David Hoover was that he wasn't so much eager to tell some, tell America what somebody was doing wrong, particularly if they were... What he was eager to do was let the person in the power position know he knew what they were doing wrong. I.J. Hoover, know what you did, and your secret is safe with me, but for crying out loud, be careful in the future. That right there puts the senator, the judge, president, president's family on notice that somebody knew. Somebody was keeping a secret. And with each secret he kept, this man's power increased. And because his power increased, his popularity he was constantly in front of America's eyes, and they loved it. They felt safe. He was kissing Shirley Temple on the cheek. He was America's and he was honest. He didn't get a big salary. He didn't want a big salary. And when Joseph Kennedy, the father of the later president, John F. Kennedy offered him the presidency. He said, no, I won't run the president. I have no interest in running the president. On October 11, 1955, Joseph Kennedy wrote to Hoover, Walter Winchell mentioned your name as a presidential candidate. It will be wonderful for the United States, whether on a Republican or a Democratic ticket. I guarantee my support. The United States deserves you. And when Kennedy uh, just... Hey, I'm here to say new FanDuel customers at $5 get $100. And I'm training Gronk for the $10 million ticket destination training montage. Hey, guys, Jack Cardone. Hope you're doing well today. Uh, here we are going into 2023. That's going to be breakable for some and unbreakable for some. The United States deserves it. And when Kennedy said, yes, good guy, he said, because I always have more power than that. I'll be out of business in four years. I've got all the power I want right now, and I'm not an elected official. And in fact, he was an appointed official that managed to go from administration to administration to administration. And
very, very, very popular. In February 1950, Senator Joseph McCarthy stated that the Truman government was knowingly harboring over 200 Communist Party members. When summoned to give proof, he requested Hoover's help. Hoover dug up pertinent material and began to secretly feed him information. In the late 40s, Senator McCarthy was on a rampage to expose communists within the country. And for J. Hoover, anyone who was joining his team to expose communists was a friend. Most people in this country knew someone that had flirted with joining the Communist Party. Only oh, was very popular. It was like a radical cause. It was very in at the time. It wasn't so much that they were in favor of communism, they were in favor of doing something avant-garde. In 1951, Hoover joined the Nixon-Eisenhower camp for the coming elections. The opponent was Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson. The day Stevenson announced his candidacy, the FBI prepared a memo accusing him of homosexuality and communist sympathies. Hoover ordered an anonymous letter making sexual allegations. The rumor spread through Washington. His FBI file was titled, Stevenson, Sexual Deviant. Hoover used McCarthy and journalist Walter Winchell to destroy Stevenson's good reputation. In November 52, Eisenhower won with 55% of the vote. Hoover feed McCarthy material. There's no suggestion that the FBI and McCarthy were together up until the point that um, McCarthy decided to announce his source. As soon as he was challenged to prove some of these facts, he was doubting. He said, well, the FBI gave me the material, at which point Jake Hoover became outraged and went and made a, a, uh, an announcement publicly that the FBI did not indeed directly supply McCarthy with any information. The fact was, as soon as he was directly involved with McCarthy, however, he started to back away from um, the senator. And as McCarthy became more and more unpopular, Hoover became more and more popular. He was talking to America, saying, we need to be level-headed, we need to be reasonable here. It was the type of thing that Hoover did repeatedly. He did it with journalists. He did it with his friends, his superstar friends. He would feed them bits of information, cancelize them. And uh, as soon as they became unuseful fans, he would stop them. And this was a man who did not cultivate friendship. He cultivated opportunities. He manipulated uh, America. He manipulated Congress. He manipulated Hollywood. Hoover knew rumors of homosexuality ruined political careers. He used this. He was a master manipulator. So his enemies began using the same methods, accusing him of a romantic relationship with his chief aide, Clyde Tolson, which had lasted 40 years. <laughs> They worked together, were unmarried, and inseparable. Journalists spread the rumor that the Mafia had compromising photos. 
No one has seen these photos, and while these accusations could have ruined Hoover's career, no mafia boss would have risked blackmailing the country's most formidable man. Tolson stayed with him to the end. He left the FBI the day that Hoover died. There was not one single instance, a shred of proof. And believe me, I looked. There would have been something somewhere to suggest that something was going on. And the only thing that I found that showed any sign of love whatsoever was all the mementos he kept from his mother and Dorothy Lamour. The concept that Hoover was more powerful than anyone in the United States was based on fact. You did not want to get on the bad side of this man. You wanted to be his friend, if at all possible. This not only included people in Washington, it definitely included people in Hollywood. Hoover often visited Hollywood. He loved being seen with stars and then with him. He was America's biggest star, and the photos made all the magazines. The actors sought the favor of America's leading cops. They welcomed him during filming, dined with him, some even took shooting lessons at the FBI. They didn't know he had them followed, wiretapped, and kept files on each of them. He knew that the glamour of premieres, palm trees, and beautiful films hid a world of gangsters, blackmail, prostitutes, drugs, corrupt lawyers, and publicity-hungry politicians. In 1953, he named a committee to launch a series of investigations into Hollywood. This is how Lana Turner, Jerry Cooper, Anthony Quinn, Say goodbye to Hollywood. Spencer Tracy, Groucho Marx, Charlie Chaplin, and many others ended up with FBI files. Say goodbye to he even tapped producers' homes and film studios. Say goodbye, my baby. All Hollywood was wiped. Jerry Hoover had his own unique style and method of filing. It is what made his power base so remarkable. Because no one knew where to find anything among these millions of documents. Oh, man. Hoover's files had five categories. A scene sexual deviancy, first run confidential, official confidential, and the fifth, do not find, which reported on the Bureau's own infractions. Hoover understood that sex and money were the key weaknesses of politicians. Each number representing something absolutely unique to Jake Hoover. But for anyone else that was looking at it to figure out, I mean, it wasn't alphabetical, it wasn't by subject, it wasn't by state, it wasn't by crime. It had absolutely no sense. Yet if you needed a file, his assistants would write to that filing cabinet and put out the one piece of paper you need, and even to this day, the filing system has not changed. And to this day, there is absolutely no semblance of order to it unless you work within the FBI. And if you do, then you know exactly where to find everything. Say goodbye, my baby. They know where to find things. 
They also know, by the way, because of the Freedom of Information Act in this country, you can get access to all these files. It's one of the ways I was able to write this book on J. Edgar Hoover, but they also have a big black pen and they mark everything out that they don't want you to see. He is to getting the pieces of paper without the black pen marked on them. That's the real secret. In the 1950s, Hoover learned that many politicians, including Nixon, Johnson, Truman, and Kennedy, would go to Las Vegas, Sin City, to get dirty money from the Mafia to assist in their electoral campaigns. For the first time in America, Hoover bugged a whole city. Hotel rooms, casinos, restaurants, administrative buildings, and unions. He knew everything about Senator Kennedy's affairs with girls introduced to him by Sinatra and the latter's mafia ties. When JFK became president in 1960, he decided to get rid of Hoover. This was Hoover's first real threat. Well, in a lot of ways, um, J. Edgar Hoover and Frank Sinatra were made for each other. When Frank Sinatra died in 1998, we both became interested in his uh, FBI files because we we both work in that area. I I do I do a lot of work with government archives, and Philip uh, Phil does a lot of work with um, in investigative reporting, and we. So you want to know where to invest a thousand dollars right now? Well, forget about stocks, real estate, or cryptocurrency. There is a little. And Philip uh, Phil does a lot of work with um, an investigative report. And we knew that since Sinatra had been such a dominant figure uh, in American entertainment and American politics for the last half century, that his files would uh, no doubt be quite interesting. And they were. What you had was a, uh, a history of the United States for about 50 years, going from the communist era, through the Kennedy era, through the uh, Reagan era, because uh, Frank Sinatra was rubbing elbows with everybody in that time period. He was a celebrity that uh, both uh, found himself attracted to powerful figures and saw powerful figures attracted to him. And the entire time, another great figure in American history, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, was watching this whole thing unfold and keeping copious notes on both things that were observed, facts that were observed, and also unverified rumors um, about Frank Sinatra's life. All of it was taken down um, in this dossier that you that, that we and put into this book. Do a FOIA request and do a biography about Frank Sinatra was Sinatra forever hanging out with very, very questionable figures, Sam Giancana, who was the head of the Chicago mob, is uh, the, the most famous of them. In 1960, Frank Sinatra introduced both Sam Giancana and John F. Kennedy, who was a presidential candidate. On separate occasions, he introduced them to one Judith Campbell. Uh, Judith Campbell was mistress to, uh, to Jack Kennedy and to Sam Giancana. So you had this bizarre circumstance where this, this woman who's got uh, ties to the mob is sleeping with the president of the United States. And J. Edgar Hoover, because of how well connected he was and his informants were, knew about this at the time and um, made it clear to Robert Kennedy that he knew it, uh, President Kennedy's brother. J. Edgar Hoover immediately 
went to the White House and said to Robert Kennedy, I want you to know that it might be wise for you to talk to your brother, the president, about the relationship he is currently having with a woman named Judith Campbell, who has connections with this mafia through her own relationships. It might not look good. Your secret is perfectly safe with me. But who knows who else might be able to find out about it. And Robert Kennedy was absolutely dumbstruck. He stopped, he paused, he knew. He was wise enough to realize there was no getting rid of J. Edgar Hoover. There was no possibility of removing this man because of what he knew. You could say it was J. Edgar Hoover's finest hour, arguably, because um, at no point in American history, I don't think, did, did the underworld become so, come so close to gaining influence at the highest level of the American government. I mean, you think of this sort of thing happening in Italy, but not in the United States. But it was clear that mobsters... About Reagan's ties to the mafia through his lawyer, exclamation point. Frank Sinatra to gain an entree to the President of the United States. Hoover was 66 and knew Kennedy wanted to retire him after his 1964 re-election. He hated Jack's brother Robert Kennedy, who forced Hoover to go through him to reach the President. But thanks to his Las Vegas bugs, he knew the Kennedys were implicated in the assassination attempts on Castro and that they entrusted the job to the CIA to keep Hoover out of it. When the CIA chose two Las Vegas Mafia bosses for the mission, friends of Sinatra and the President, Sam Giancana and Johnny Rostelli, Hoover merely opened a new Kennedy file and waited. Despite Robert Kennedy's ban, Hoover bugged the Malibu house of actor and Kennedy brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, and learned about the secret relationship between Marilyn Monroe and JFK, who met there in secret. A transcript revealed that when Marilyn advised the president to get rid of Hoover, he said, Impossible. Hoover knows too much. Hoover gloated. After Marilyn Monroe's death, Hoover protected the Kennedys, but they knew he had all the facts on them. Hoover could relax. Hoover put everything in black and white, made things very simple, particularly in America. Charge your phone 40% faster with this new four-port charging device. This $37 phone charger made things very simple, particularly in America.
life itself is not that difficult if you look at things in black and white. You have the good guys and the bad guys. What you have right and you have wrong. That is exactly the way Jagger painted things. That's what he thought. There was no complications in Jager Hoover's theories. Hoover felt that the attacks on Fidel Castro and the Mafia by Robert Kennedy had left his brother exposed. President Kennedy's assassination on November 2nd, 1963 didn't surprise Hoover. His indifference shocked Robert Kennedy. Hoover felt John Kennedy died at his brother's place. According to FBI wiretap transcripts, Mobster Eddie M. was trying to have Robert Kennedy assassinated to stop his attacks on the Mafia. Hoover knew JFK's murder was designed to avenge the assassination attempt on Castro, organized by Robert Kennedy, the CIA, and the Mafia. But he couldn't reveal this. The American people would call for a war on Cuba. He warned President Johnson that Cuba had 20 Russian missiles pointed at American cities which the FBI estimated could cause 20 million deaths. Johnson and Hoover ordered the investigating committee to bury the truth in the famous Warren Report. The Kennedy family agreed to silence and never commented on the assassination again. Well, gotta play that again. One of the more interesting uh, ways that Hoover managed to control not only the government, but the media, was his ability to, to escape taking direct responsibility for anything. When he wanted to a microphone in the offices of Martin Luther King, before he would do that, however, he wanted to have the authority from someone else. In this particular case, it was the Attorney General, his boss, Robert Kennedy, who he went to multiple times requesting that he had the right to bug this man's office based on the fact that he had communist infiltration. The man, Stanley Levison, who was his financial guru, was supposedly a member of the Communist Party, and he wanted to learn what was going on in that office if indeed there was a communist connection. Eventually, Robert Kennedy said yes. He acquiesced, and he gave Hoover the power to bug. He not only bugged his office, he bugged his hotel rooms, he bugged his house, he bugged his phones, he, he bugged his car, and he discovered nothing about the <laughs> Communist Party. But he discovered that Martin Luther King was having multiple clandestine affairs with women, and it turned Jagger Hoover's stomach. Hoover would take these tapes home and listen to them at night, which is sort of fascinating. <laughs> and he spent the rest of his living days trying to discredit this man, who essentially was doing a lot of good, and what he did in his private time was his own business. Yes, to exactly. Most people, but not to Jagger Hoover. Yeah, Robert Kennedy fucking harass never him. backtracked. He never said, all right, enough, stop. He never took that power away from Jagger Hoover, and as such, to the moment he died, Martin Luther King was bugged man. There was a wonderful meeting where Martin Luther King came to Jagger Hoover in the FBI headquarters to try to make peace. And they shook hands and it appeared to everyone that they were again 
on friendly terms. There's not, nothing had changed in Hoover's eyes. He merely saw another photo opportunity, so he smiled for the cameras, and as soon as Martin Luther King was out of touch, he, he authorized another wiretap. Huh. In the early 70s, Hoover went against all his principles. Having bugged the mafia's leaders, he let them commit murders he knew about to protect his informers within the organization. Murders he knew about? He authorized their crimes and let his agents arrest and convict innocent men. Huh? Is it true that in the year 1950, you devised the murder of the head of the so-called Five Families in New York? It's a complete falsehood. It wasn't until after Hoover's death that this information became known and stands as far more an interesting appellation of uh, irresponsibility than any rumor we may have heard about this man having a relationship with the second-in-command, which pales by comparison to getting someone falsely accused of murder and letting the real murderers that you know about go free. It is appalling to me and everyone else that's heard the story, and it, it does put a giant black spot on the man's name. In 1971, Hoover's popularity was plummeting. Nixon and his aides wanted him out. An FBI memo from October 8, 1971, records the president's words. For many reasons, Hoover's got to resign. He must go of his own accord to avoid waves before next year's elections. At the same time, Nixon discovered that the Democrats were about to reveal supposed backhanders he'd received from millionaire Howard Hughes. Back he hired some former CIA agents known as the Plumbers to find the files. But a series of countrywide burglaries turned up nothing. When Hoover learned that the president had created his own secret police, a new turn of events, he gave him a warning. Nixon did this. On May 2nd, 1972, Hoover died of a heart attack. Strangely, there was no autopsy, leaving doubts as to the cause. His death was well timed. Released from this burden, a few weeks later, Nixon sent his men to burgle the Democratic Party's headquarters <laughs> in the Watergate building. Christ. The Watergate affair began. Nixon had signed his political death warrant. In 2006, we learned that the informer, Deep Throat, who triggered the investigation by two Washington journalists, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, which led to Nixon's resignation, was an FBI agent named Mark Felt, who had worked under Hoover for years. And it'll remain a mystery. I think it's a mystery even to Bob Woodward. <laughs> you don't know if the source is actually using you or that you're being given information that someone higher up wants you to have or in fact you're getting information that higher ups don't know you're getting. <laughs> why journalists have to be very professional. That's why investigators have to be very professional when it comes to release and understanding and handling of confidential sources. So that's why they call 
espionage the wilderness of mirrors. You don't know who you're working for after a while. That's right. <laughs> this building is the headquarters of the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite Freemasons. J. Edgar Hoover was a member of the Scottish Rite Freemasons. When he passed away, he was a 33rd degree Freemason, which was the highest level of Freemasonry uh, that uh, one could achieve. After Hoover's death, the FBI changed. The FBI became open. There was not the glamour that there was with Jane. The FBI had to yet again reinvent itself. It had to become beyond reproach yet again. And it did. And because it did, and because we were all watching as they did it, we took on and renewed respect once again. And Hollywood noticed, and we have the Jodie Fosters playing FBI agent. The FBI Academy. Hmm. A criminal asylum. Agent Starling. A young student of the criminal mind. Here to learn from you. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. Now we have have celebrities that are not afraid to put their name in the mix associated with the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Now, FBI profiler Terry McCaleb owes his life to the victim of a murder. Three years after Hoover's death, in December 75, Congress opened an... Bronx speaking. Great news, Bronx. You're going to be in the FanDuel Super Bowl commercial. Nice. So I just lift up my phone and say, new FanDuel customers, bet $5, win 150 bucks. Death, in December 75, Congress opened an investigation into the FBI. They summoned Hoover's secretary, Helen Gandy, who'd been with him since 1918. Where did the millions of secret files disappear to? Only one thing was certain. Documents were taken to Hoover's house after his death. <laughs> Helen Gandy swore these were only Hoover's personal effects. But the driver who carried them contradicted her, saying at least 25 binders and 35 boxes were put in the basement, monitored by employee Annie Fields. No one knows what became of them. Newsweek claimed a few months later that files damaging to Nixon's White House remained in the possession of Hoover's close friend, Clyde Tolson. At Tolson's death, his house was searched by FBI agents. Huh. Helen Gandy never talked and was never questioned again. In 1977, the FBI burned the sexual deviancy files containing 300,000 pages. Edgar Hoover is a very, very complicated figure. To this day, his name adorns the headquarters of the FBI building in Washington, D.C. It's called the J. Edgar Hoover Building. And to this day, there are people in Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, fighting over whether or not his name should be on that building because he oversaw such a huge invasion of privacy during his time period. The FBI yeah. of today is a prevention of terrorism is really what the uh, uh, what the uh, country
country demands of us at this particular time. Uh, identifying the problem before it becomes a serious problem, before the 9-11. Yeah, apparently, and, like the FAT FBI, because it's infiltrated with um, Trump cunts. That's said to be why they, they, you know, done a pretty lame-ass job. Only given um, trespassing and picketing charges to like a thousand Trumpicunts who attacked Congress and tried to hang Mike Pence and the House Speaker and smeared their shit all over the walls and all that good stuff. 9-11 is not that we didn't know about it. It's that we didn't tell about it. There was information out there. It wasn't just going to the right places. I mean, we were getting bits and pieces. It yeah, just never was collected you know what in a single going pot. On, and so in Jager Hoover's time, it would have been collected. It would have been put there. Yeah. It would have been found out. There was no but other place for it to go. Now we have Homeland Security. We've got maybe the CIA. We've got, you know, we've got the TSA. We've got all these initials, and everybody has their own little place, and nobody knows what to do. What do we need a government and for? In Hoover's case, friends like he that, you don't need do. enemies. The buck stopped there. With a government he like that, you don't need enemies. Nobody ever didn't tell them. Everyone was was proud to be able to get their memo to Hoover. Yeah.